Welcome to the Payments Podium Podcast, hosted by the payments professor himself, Kevin Olson. This podcast discusses the past, present, and the possibilities of the payments industry. Here's the show. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to the Payments Podium with the Payments Professor, where we talk about the past, the present, and the possibilities of everything that is happening in payments. The world of payments is constantly changing, constantly evolving. And on our show, we invite to have professionals from the industry come and take the Payments Podium, where they are allowed to be able to speak and voice their views on industry topics that, well, are hot and relevant at that time. And on today's show, I have a great guest that's going to be here with us, going to be discussing some things on virtual currency and some things on cryptocurrency. He is from Epcor and his name is Brian Lavender. Brian, thank you for joining the Payments Podium today. Oh, thank you for having me on the show. Absolutely. Now, Brian, if you would, for listeners, can we get just maybe a short breakdown of what it is you do for Epcor and a little bit of history of your banking background? Yeah, sure. Of course. Uh, well, my name is Brian Lavender. I'm the Director of Emerging Payments Education at EPCOR. EPCOR is a payments association that's based in Kansas City, Missouri, and we serve financial institutions and a few other uh, parties within the payment system, primarily in the Midwest. Uh, we service about 12 states, you know, places like Kansas, Missouri, Indiana, Ohio, places like that. Uh, and we are the, the resource for any sort of knowledge uh, that our members need uh, with regards to payment system rules and regulations and also just you know things that are happening out there in the world today like you know really the, the cutting edge of payments and that's where I come in um, as the director of emerging payments uh, as my title would suggest I'm the one that's focused on all of the new stuff everything that's uh, uh, happening with regards to faster payments real-time payments but also things like cryptocurrencies, and just more broadly, uh, overall trends uh, with payment usage domestically and internationally. And uh, I've also uh, taken quite an interest in educating people about payment strategies. Um, to give you a little bit more about my background, uh, raised in North Carolina, schooled in North Carolina. I'm a proud graduate of UNC Asheville and UNC Greensboro. And uh, after graduation, I went into banking, like a lot of North Carolinians do, and uh, spent uh, several years at a large national institution based in North Carolina. Um, but from there, you know, I moved to the Midwest and joined Upcor. That's that's pretty much my life in payments. I, I've been in payments now for uh, ooh quite some time. I really, I mean, I started payments back in 2012, and before that, banking back in 2007. So this has been my life ever since. Uh, I love school. Well, and you know, I like that you say it's been my life because I know <laughs> from working with you, you're, you're like me, you know, you get so passionate about this stuff. You spend a lot of times after hours. I can even remember at one of the Epcor conferences, I think it was about three or four years ago, I got in real late at night and you know, the only place to get something to eat was right there at the bar. And I see you at the, um, sitting in the lobby, you're eating too, and you're reading a book, studying up on the banking industry at, you know, nine or 10 o'clock at night. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm often uh, the geek with uh, my nose and, and a book about economics, but I mean, you, you've known this for, for years, Kevin, right? Because of course right. you, you were the first person who introduced me to ACH really. Uh, I mean, for, for listeners who don't know, uh, I, I mean, I've known Kevin ever since, I guess, about 2012, uh, when he was, I, I would 
I, I think like my first instructor on the ACH rules. Um, so yeah, you, you know what it's like. <laughs> I, I do. And you know, and what's funny too is I like that you went to where you, you got started and you know, even when you met me, that's great. And one of the things that we like to do on the show is really focus in on how did we get to where we are now? And how did we get to where we are now? Because, you know, you start talking cryptocurrency, you start talking virtual currency, you throw the word blockchain out there, and I watch people's eyes just glaze over. They're like, I don't get it. I, I, what is this? I've even seen notes written at conferences, you know, between two people that are like, crypto what? What, what does this mean? I mean, can you maybe give us a little short history lesson on where did cryptocurrency, where did virtual currency come from? Ooh, short history. Well, I'll do the best I can. Uh, you know, kind of depends on maybe how far back in history you want to go. Uh, you know, we could start by talking about the evolution of money, which I think is an important thing. Uh, right. Because, you know, payment systems do not exist without money, right? I mean, essentially, they're two sides of the same coin, if I can use that. It's <laughs> a good term. <laughs> use that. Um, but we've seen, I mean, I think I will start with the evolution of money, right? We've seen money evolve over time and it has become more convenient as new technologies have become available, right? Money started with just the exchange of commodities, right? Just bars of gold and silver. <clears throat> over time, as mints became available, right? That got turned into gold coins, silver coins. You know, those were used throughout antiquity for thousands of years. You've probably seen images of, uh, you know, coins with the Roman emperors on them. Um, and again, over time, we began to get things like, you know, paper currency. That paper currency for a time was backed by commodities, right? For a time, we did have money that was backed by gold. Um, but, you know, we've now transitioned to fiat, physical currencies, or really money that is money because the government decrees that it's money. Um, but now we have, of course, new things, new things that have come about from just this mass proliferation of computer technology that really occurred, uh, after the middle half of the 20th century. So, I mean, specifically talking about cryptocurrencies, while they seem like a recent phenomenon, and then they are the roots of them actually stretch back a little bit further than you might think. Really? Like past before 2000 or even before, let's say, you know, cause a lot of times I talk cryptocurrency to make it easy for people. I go, you know how we used to have physical mail and then we got email. It's very similar to that. It's going from a physical world to really a computer world. So does he, does he even go back before computers or before, you know, when computers became prevalent in say the late nineties? I mean, in some respects it does, or in a way, uh, I mean, there was uh, an, an island in the Pacific, the island of Yap, that famously used these giant carved stones as a currency, and, and these gigantic physical stones that would weigh tons wouldn't move, but the people of the island would keep track of the value simply by exchanging information with their neighbors, right? So in essence, that ledger existed virtually within the heads of the inhabitants of the island of Yap. Now that's like really stretching back way back in time. I mean, cause that was hundreds of years ago. Um, 
But to bring it even more closer to the present, right? Bitcoin, the granddaddy of all cryptocurrencies, it didn't just spring forth out of nothing. It was the result of years of work ahead of time. I mean, like for instance, the the math that really uh, powers the uh, public key public key cryptography, and much of that dated back to the 1970s. Right, without that work by researchers, Bitcoin never would have happened. But yes, and and and, and the popular understanding, the history of Bitcoin really begins back in 2008. And really, the history of cryptocurrency begins back in 2008. That's when Satoshi Nakamoto was working on the white paper and released it, released this first idea of a cryptocurrency, a way to exchange value without the traditional centralized third parties that we have with payment systems like central banks, like financial institutions. And then, of course, <clears throat> the protocol itself was released in January 2009. So this is still a relatively recent and new technology. I mean, Bitcoin, I mean, as I just said, it's barely 10 years old. Um, but everything, there, there, was, there were a number of things that were necessary before that could be created. <clears throat> mm. You know, no, it's funny too, because in, you say these names like Satoshi and Nakamoto, when people bring that one up, I, I know a lot of times people are like, but there's so much mystery around that because nobody knows for sure exactly who that is or if it was really more of a group of people. And that brings that shroud of mystery. And I wonder if that cloud of mystery that's there, that shroud of, oh, we don't get this. Who is this person? Because it can't be attributed to government, which we're known you know, we usually trust for backing our money, but an unknown individual is now who we're trusting in that causes maybe some of the confusion and even the fear that goes along with Bitcoin. Yeah, it's true. I mean, no one knows who Satoshi Nakamoto is. I mean, it, it could be one person, it could be a group of people. Uh, and, and there have been efforts to find Satoshi uh, because this person or persons, whoever it is, that goes by the name Satoshi Nakamoto, uh, dropped off the map years ago. Um, no one has heard anything from Satoshi since I think uh, sometime in 2010, I believe. And all of the Bitcoin that Satoshi himself or herself or whoever they are, uh, all the, the Bitcoin that that person mined, uh, it's just gone in essence. Um, and I mean, there have been more recent efforts to try to find out who this person is, but yes, you are correct. To date, no one really knows who's behind the creation of Bitcoin. But having said that, even with that lack of knowledge, we have seen it, you know, still continue um, because of course, uh, after the protocol was released, uh, a number of programmers around the world became interested in it. And it's really that interest that has continued to allow Bitcoin specifically uh, to continue to exist, but that has also caused others um, to seek interest in developing other cryptocurrencies as well. Well, I, I love this. You've actually set up the per perfect transition because that's, you know, more of the past and what's happened in virtual currency slash cryptocurrency. 
and what we have seen. Let's go ahead and let's take it into the present because you said there have been efforts to find, you know, Satoshi or just try and figure out what's happened to him. But you also said that, you know, there was a lot of Bitcoin that this person had and now it's just gone. And one of the things I see currently, and it goes back to that we don't understand it or a lot of people don't understand it, is the fear that comes along with it because people hear it could just disappear. It could be gone. I can lose something and it not be there. What, what, what relevancy is there really to that? I mean, that is certainly a possibility. Um, I mean, you know, to the point of, of Satoshi, right? He, he received these, this Bitcoin uh, as a result of mining or in essence, validating others transactions. Uh, now, if you choose not to use that Bitcoin, right, it, it can, in essence, completely just disappear, um, right? There, there's no, it, there's not any sort of record of, of those being used. Um, but there is a, a concern of, of hacks. Um, and this has been uh, a part of Bitcoin's history, really, ever since the beginning of people setting up, um, you know, uh, exchanges and things like that and, and other uh, additional layers in which um, provide wallet access, a virtual wallet, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, but these can be hacked and the Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies that people trust to these other parties, um, it is possible and it certainly has happened in many instances where that is taken um, by hackers and other um, criminal elements. And, you know, of course the way these things are set up, right? There's not really any way to get that sort of thing back. Uh, you know, it, these things are push transactions and, right. uh, you know, as a, a new thing, uh, that hasn't completely been addressed by authorities. Although, you know, we can maybe like, I, trying to think of like how to say this, you know, there's not quite the same level of consumer protection uh, when it comes to cryptocurrencies that you would see with other more traditional payment methods. Um, so when things go wrong, uh, users don't have the same level of recourse that they have with, you know, more traditional payment methods. So in, in essence, from the way I understand it, and, and, and maybe if I'm understanding you correctly too, I think you might be saying this too, that the protocol that is in place to make Bitcoin secure, to protect Bitcoin, if not correctly done, if users don't have the correct backups, if they don't allow somebody else to be able to say in the, uh, their death, have access to it, that's what causes it to be lost. And on top of that, the fact that it is, we're not really seeing a lot of government backing yet. I mean, we are seeing some, there are some countries that are getting involved in cryptocurrency, but we don't see like any one government backing uh, Bitcoin specifically, that it doesn't give you the same rights and protections that you would see with other quote unquote electronic types of currency. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I think there, there's a, there's a couple of important elements like to pick out from what you just talked about um, to, to give like a more complete answer. Uh, okay. You know, one thing of course is Bitcoin, other cryptocurrencies, Right. Yes, they are not the product of a central bank or a government. Um, so these are not legal tender. 
uh, in the same sense that like an American dollar would be legal tender to settle uh, debts here in America. Um, but also as something that exists in the virtual world, right? The great world of the World Wide Web, when things go wrong, it can be very hard to uh, try to address that simply because these things can exist across the world. And in fact, they do. Uh, so, you know, with respect to uh, government regulations, there are government regulations that apply to these things. I mean, I, I don't want your listeners to be confused on that point. Uh, they very much do apply. But in terms of enforcement, right, like with any other cyber crime, that's where things can become so challenging. Because even if you have uh, regulations that apply, catching those bad actors out in the World Wide Web can oftentimes be difficult. Um, but that's not to say that it doesn't happen. I mean, it very much does. Uh, so... I don't know. Does that answer your question, Kevin? I think it does. And you know, the other thing too, I think is really important that all listeners out there should understand is just because it's cryptocurrency, that doesn't make it to where it's more susceptible to hacking or infiltration any more than anything else. Anything that is online has the possibility of being broken into. I mean, that's just a fact. And you know, I do a lot on fraud and it's not so much the system itself. I mean, granted, yes, fraudsters do look for the systems they know best, which are usually the ones that they're able to manipulate the best or the easiest to go in. But most, most of our fraud ends up happening from account takeover and phishing anyway. And it's not because of the payment channel itself. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, criminals are going to exploit weak points. Um, but even there, like that's not the only way in which people can quote unquote lose Bitcoin, you know, to, to hackers, um, you know, depending on how you have your, uh, your wallet set up. If, I mean, I, I've heard of like many cases where, you know, people like have everything like stored on a, uh, a, a separate hard drive and they've lost that hard drive. And guess what happens when you lose that hard drive? It's no different than when you lose your data, right? It, it, well, it, what's no different than when you lose your actual wallet, right? Right. <laughs> my, my wallet, you know, falls out when I'm walking down the street. You know, that thing very well could just be completely gone, right? Along with all the money that I have inside it. Um, and, and there have been many cases of that. I mean, I, I recall like a, a pretty unfortunate situation of someone in Britain uh, who did such a thing. Uh, he had all of his information stored on a hard drive that somehow got misplaced while he was cleaning his house. And then he tried to get permission to uh, like start digging at the city landfill because by his estimation, uh, the, the Bitcoin that was like stored on that, that, that lost hard drive would have been worth millions of dollars. Uh, so he was trying to find a way to like finance like a big dig at the city landfill. And of course the city was like, no, but there have been many too. stories like that. Right. And of course, like those Bitcoin, they're, they're completely lost because you can't access the wallet to spend them. Right. You know what I like though? You said it's no different losing your wallet. So what, what, let's just say hypothetically, you know, crazy situation. 
you got a wallet full of $100 bills. It's also got in it maybe a one-time prepaid card that can only be used, something like that with $5 million. You're flying over a restricted area you shouldn't have been over, but your wallet falls out of the helicopter down into this restricted area, and it's a jungle too, and you're immediately rushed away. It's no different than that with a physical wallet, even though it's virtual currency, right? And and what you're saying. Yeah, I, I mean, if you lose your your digital wallet, I mean, yeah, in effect, it can be very similar to losing that physical wallet, right? That if the contents yeah. of that physical wallet are gone, in particular cash, right? It's gone for good, you know? But now, of course, like something like a credit card, right? If you lose your wallet, and uh, you know it's filled with like credit cards. Of course, you can call your credit card company and cancel those, right? So you have some extra protection. Um, but this also kind of like ties into, uh, I think, a, a very interesting feature of the future of money, right? And that's anonymity, because I think that's one thing that a lot of people still have like a lot of confusion about. They think that cryptocurrency transactions are completely anonymous. And with Bitcoin in particular, it's not completely anonymous. There's pseudo anonymity, right? Every transaction is tied to a wallet uh, and everything is recorded on that ledger. And there are of course like some other things out there and some other cryptocurrencies that have additional layers of anonymity. But really the only thing that provides full anonymity for any sort of transaction is cash. That's right. Because, you know, no one knows how much money I have in my wallet, right? No one knows. There's no record of me, you know, paying like $20, pulling out a $20 bill to pay back a friend if, you know, I'm, you know, paying him back for some pizza or something like that, right? That's full anonymity. And I think, that is one of like the really interesting uh, drivers about conversations for the next possible step. Because, you know, I, I, I'm sure, you know, cryptocurrencies are, are, are very much, uh, you know, kind of out there on the cutting edge for a lot of listeners, but there's actually steps beyond that that really examine what is the next evolution for our money. And the, the thing that I'm really thinking about here are what's called central bank digital currencies or CBDCs. CBDCs. All right. So we're going to move on into the future and the possibilities of what can happen with cryptocurrency and CBDCs. That's, is that what you said? Am I correct? Yes. CBDCs, central bank digital currency. Okay. And can you describe that for us? I mean, in its basics, what exactly is it? Well, as the name would suggest, it is a, or could be, right, because these, these do not exist, um, a digital currency issued by a central bank. Now, there's a lot of possible ways this could happen. And there are a number of reasons why a central bank may wish to explore it. And there are a number of central banks around the world today that are researching these. Um, there have been just a handful of limited uh, pilots and testing of possible technologies 
but again, I do want to stress to listeners, this is, this is, you know, you know, not coming like around the corner. I mean, this is something that, uh, is, is, is very much just a topic of research. Um, but it is a possible evolution of money. Right. Again, going back to how we started this conversation with that evolution of money from metal to metal commodities like gold and silver coins to mm-hmm. uh, paper money that was backed by a physical commodity to fiat physical currency is the next step in that evolution a digital currency issued by a central bank. Right, Nisana, think about to think about, and and, and I mean, it, so uh, like think about like if this were to happen, right? Um, this could be something that would take the place of cash, possibly. And this, of course, is one of the reasons why some central banks are exploring this, because one trend um, that's true across almost all developed economies is that people are using cash less frequently. Right. And they're using it less frequently in favor of electronic payment methods. So, you know, again, this, this is really, you know, looking into the future. Are we, are we ever going to get to a point at which people don't use cash? Well, I think it's also and, important and if we, that if we, we get point to that out, point. I, I think we got to point out though that cash is expensive. I don't think a lot of people who don't work in the banking industry or maybe even that department don't realize cash is expensive. Like even, you know, there are governments that want to get rid of a lot of their lower currencies, even ours included. You look at the cost of creating a penny, it costs more than a penny to make a penny. So it's actually, you know, a negative uh, in creation of it. Cash is also dirty and, you know, you people are touching it all the time. And it's cumbersome to have to move around. And there's a lot of security risks that go along with it. So there are a lot of reasons, like you said, I believe we should be exploring all of this. And it would be great to get rid of cash. But there are a number of benefits to cash. Uh, The number one, I think, being that cash is available to everyone, right? As long as you have cash, you are included in that payment method and that payment system, right? Anybody can use cash. Um, now, when it comes to other electronic payment methods, uh, you know, of course, not everyone has access to a bank account. Um, not everyone has uh, access to a mobile device and not everyone can have access to the number of different payment methods. And that feature in particular is one of the reasons why central banks are examining this possible technology, right? Could a central bank digital currency provide that financial inclusion that we now have with physical currency? And I mean, that's an open question, right? Right. Um, I mean, there's, there's not, there, there are arguments for and against it. Um, of course, there are a number of other ways in which uh, financial inclusion can, can happen. Um, but also looking at, again, going back to one of the, the classic features of cash, only cash provides that full anonymity. 
So is it possible to develop a digital equivalent that could provide the same level of anonymity that we now have with cash? Or do we even want that? We being society and the governments that society creates. Because of course, with anonymous transactions, right, there's a number of problems that can arise from that. You know, money laundering, terrorist financing, mm -hmm. tax evasion, all these things that, you know, we, society, right, of course, governments generally recognize as being negatives. And of course they are, they are negatives. And we see these as being problems with cryptocurrencies now. So if, again, this is a, a possible evolution, um, how could central bank digital currencies address those concerns? Well, let me let you and think again, about there's this, I mean, I know, I know I'm dropping like all sorts of uh, like really uh, like far out questions there, but I, I, I think it's, <laughs> I, I, I think it's really important though, because this discussion I, and like all these things we're talking about, I, I know that these are not going to be immediately impacting a lot of the listeners, right? There's not going to be an immediate impact from these things because for the most part, they just exist as ideas on paper. But I think they really underscore just how much things are changing. Right. I mean, well, right Brian, now, let, let me right check now, for a second. Because oh, yeah, sure. We're, we're running out of time, and I want to make sure that you get some great closing comments in there. So, you know, I, and I think you're right there at that point. But I want to insert just a couple of things where you put those closing comments together. And, you know, one of those things is I, I should have said it at the beginning, but I, I hope everybody understands the views expressed here are those of yeah, the payments professor, Kevin Olson, and of Brian Lavender. They're not necessarily the organizations that we may work for. We do a lot of work and research into these areas to be able to get to understand them. But I would say this. I do believe, in fact, I do a speech called There's a Place for Every Payment and Every Payment Has Its Place. I think there is definitely a place for having crypto and virtual currencies. We're definitely seeing it with the virtual currencies, like what we see in video games, stuff like that. works phenomenally. And I think the cryptocurrencies are going to have their place. I really believe it's going to probably be more for the international market that we'll see it's more effective. Well, where we're seeing you know, things like, uh, I know Ripple's been used, uh, seeing Bitcoin accepted in more and more countries as well. And I also agree with you on the cash aspect. And there's two things that you said that I truly agree with, that cash will never go away. And I said never. I don't see cash ever going away because one, you nailed it. It's the accessibility to everybody. You don't have to have a computer. You don't have to have a smartphone to be able to use cash. And number two, shame. It's the anonymous part. I call it shame money. That anonymity that comes with the fact that I can use cash and it's not traceable. Well, we got to really go with not as traceable because, you know, right. there are certain times it can't be traced. But those two aspects are why I never see cash going away, even though we have cryptocurrency and we say it can be replacing cash in some ways. But we also use a lot of our other payments to say that they're replacing cash. So based on everything we've been discussing, I would like to hear really what are your closing thoughts on what's the future of cryptocurrency? What should we expect? Could we expect? Do you think as the, a payments professional in this area, do you think it's going to happen? Mm, as a payments professional, what do I think is going to happen? 
Well, I think it is going to continue to drive conversations um, as it has been for the past several years. And beyond conversations, I think it's driving innovation. Uh, because when you look at the, the market of cryptocurrencies now and the, the number of transactions that can be conducted across these types of payment systems, I mean, it, it's, it's a fraction of what our traditional payment systems can handle and what they handle on a normal basis. I mean, I think the, the current market cap, as I speak now, for cryptocurrencies is something like $7 billion, give or take a little bit. But cards in the U.S. alone in 2017 handled over $6 trillion worth of transactions. So I, I, I think our traditional payment systems are going to thrive well into the future. But I think as innovation continues to happen and people continue to explore the technology that's currently powering cryptocurrency and perhaps some new form of technology that hasn't even been developed yet, I think that will continue to push uh, traditional players to be more innovative. And I think innovation in payments is a very good thing, right? Because innovation in payments has led to so many of the benefits that we enjoy today, particularly with accessibility and speed. So while I don't have a crystal ball that tells me, you know, are we going to have central bank digital currencies or what the next step of cryptocurrency is going to be, um, I think we are going to continue to be in a time of pretty profound evolution with regards to our payments. Um, and as a payments professional, I think that's just a fantastic time to be in the industry. I mean, this is a very exciting time and I think the excitement will continue. And, you know, with regards to, you know, these specific topics, you know, the best thing for your listeners is to just really stay informed. Um, because Got to while, agree. These, while, while these things might not have the immediate impact of, you know, changing what you do next week or next year or even in the next decade, these things could potentially have an impact on something uh, within your lifetime. So I think it's just important for people to stay as connected as possible to what's going on, to learn not only about those changes that are immediately impacting the way they do payments, but also those things that might impact their organization uh, years in the future. All right. Well, Brian, I'm going to have to cut you off because the bell is rung. We have ran out of time for this particular class and this particular episode of the Payments Podium. I do want to let everybody know that we will be having future podcasts that will be dealing on a variety of topics in the electronic payments world. Of course, we're going to be addressing faster payments from many different angles. And we want to have some discussions on checks. Checks are still one of the dominating payment channels out there. Got a lot of check professionals lined up to come on the show and be able to express some of their opinions and views. Going to be working with some fintechs some innovators in the industry. And there's good old ACH. There's some issues in there that we want to be able to bring up and address. Until then, everybody, class dismissed. Hope to see you in future episodes. Thank you for listening to the Payments Podium Podcast. Check back every Thursday for a conversation with the Payments Professor. This podcast is hosted and produced by Kevin Olson and edited by Sam Sue Smith. See you on Thursday.